Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. And so he ran ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him because Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be a guest in the house of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said, Today, Salvation has come upon this house, for he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Where does generosity come from? Where does generosity come from? As we continue this series on generous outcasts, looking at these three stories out of Scripture where you find someone who is truly considered an outcast in their society and yet, because they encounter the gospel, show tremendous generosity. Where does generosity come from? It's a little bit like the man who comes to the pastor one Sunday and says, I know You've been talking lately about tithes and offerings and the tithe being that biblical call to the 10% being the Lord's and then generosity above and beyond that. But she says, he says, Pastor, you got to understand, I'm a very, very, very successful businessman. I mean, this is not practical. It, it, it is impossible for me to tithe on my income. He said, can you help me, pastor? And the pastor says, you know, this one is always answered by prayer. Let's pray. Lord, reduce this man's income to a level where he feels that he can start tithing. You see, Zacchaeus is a very wealthy man. And yet as he encounters the gospel in this text, he shows generosity that is unbelievable. You see, it's all about Zacchaeus encountering the gospel, in encountering Jesus. And it's all because of one phrase. I mean, you can go home today, open up to Luke 19 and look at verse 5, and that's the whole gospel. Zacchaeus is transformed by that one verse. Jesus tells one phrase to him, and this man's life is completely turned around and generosity pours out of him like we cannot even imagine. Verse five, he's up in the tree. And what does Jesus say? Zacchaeus, hurry, come down for today I must stay in your house. And that contains the whole transformation of Zacchaeus. 
Here's why. Because in that one phrase from Jesus, in that one phrase, Zacchaeus is exposed, totally exposed by that phrase. He's just all on display before Jesus, before the crowd, before himself. But not only is Zacchaeus exposed by that phrase, he's embraced in that phrase. Embraced with a love that he could never know. But finally, not only is he exposed and embraced, but Zacchaeus gets enlisted into a new life. So first, in that phrase, Zacchaeus is exposed. Verse five, that first word, his name, Zacchaeus. I mean, right there, that one name, Zacchaeus, it begins to expose him because there is nothing in the gospel texts that indicate that Jesus should have known who Zacchaeus was. There's no other moment when they bump into each other that suggests that, oh, this is an old friend of Jesus. Everything in the text would tell us that Jesus did not know this man before he came to Jericho. And so all of a sudden, though Luke says in verse 1 that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, it's just kind of like a passing through story. Nothing significant going to happen here in Jericho. And verse 4 says the same phrase of Jesus was passing by this way. All of a sudden in verse 5, Jesus stops and he speaks the man's name, Zacchaeus. It's almost like Jesus had already been told about this man, that his father had already arranged a divine appointment for Jesus and Zacchaeus sitting on the tree. Can you imagine as he's praying maybe the day before and his father is unveiling what's coming and he's saying, really father, he's going to be in a tree? He's going to be in a tree. And his name is Zacchaeus and here's who he is. See, Jesus by saying his name is indicating, he know, I know you. And the name itself is ironic. You see, the name Zacchaeus means pure. It means innocent. Imagine that Jewish mama when she was naming that boy. My boy is going to be pure. He's going to be innocent. Oh, that she had to grow up and watch him become, as verse 2 says, a tax collector. It's a horribly ironic name for a tax collector. Because the tax collectors, as we see in verse 2, these are the first century Jewish turncoats. They are cooperating with a foreign pagan empire to extract taxes out of their fellow Jewish men and women. You see, these tax collectors were Jewish. They knew the language, they knew the culture, they knew the industry, and therefore they could go with their pagan Roman soldier at sword length and extract taxes for Caesar. And of course they got rich off of it because they could just add whatever surtax they wanted on top. And they were terribly ripping off the population. They were getting rich off of their countrymen. As William Barclay describes tax collectors, he says, just be clear, by Jewish law, a tax collector was barred from the synagogue. They couldn't go to church. He was excluded, he was, sorry, he was included with things and beasts considered unclean. Leviticus chapter 20 was applied to them saying, you shall separate yourselves from the unclean. Tax collectors were forbidden from being witnesses in any court cases, and robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classified together. Robbers, murderers, tax collectors. Here's Zacchaeus, Mr. Pure, Mr. Innocence. 
And see, it's not just that. He's no regular tax collector. Verse 2 says he is the chief of tax collectors. He's the archi-telonis. Telonis, tax keeper, tax gatherer. Archi-telonis. The chief, the top, the head, the ruler of the tax collectors. Think of archbishop, archangel, arch-tax collector. Better, arch-traitor. That's what he is. And he knows it. In verse 7, when the crowd refers to him as a sinner, it's accurate. He is a sinner. He knows it. The crowd knows it. And Jesus knows it. And this is why he has to climb the tree. See, verse 3 says that he wanted to see Jesus. Something in him was drawn to see Jesus. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small stature. We often sing that song, you know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? And we think, oh, it's all because he's short. He is the patron saint of short people. <laughs> Ever since I've moved to Texas, I'm like, I need a patron saint, all these tall cowboys around me. But here's the reality. Short people can still get to the front of a crowd. Children do. Short people can work their way to the front. I always get to the front of the crowd. I always see the parade. See, it wasn't just his stature that was a problem. It was his stature mixed with his identity with the crowd on account of the crowd, verse 3 says. See, the crowd, the crowd knows Zacchaeus. They, knows what, they know who he is. And interestingly, verse 2 says that he was rich. How did he get rich? Well, he's the Architolonus, he's the ruler of the tax collectors, which means that all the tax collectors in Jericho were ripping off all of the Jews, and then he was getting a cut off of what they were ripping off. So effectively, Zacchaeus has personally ripped off every single person in that crowd. No wonder he couldn't work his way through. No wonder he had to run down the road and climb into the sycamore tree because he couldn't face the crowd. Being up that tree was a sign of his identity and his shame in that community. And so Jesus' first word to him totally exposes him. Zacchaeus, hurry, come down. In other words, I know why you're up that tree. Come on down, Zacchaeus. See, we live in a shame-denying world. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some unhealthy shaming that goes on out there that we need to resist. But there is also a whole lot of unhealthy self-justification that goes on that doesn't allow us to actually feel that sense of shame that comes from legitimate sin and brokenness in our lives. My dog, Tiggy, has no problem understanding shame. When we come home and he has done something disgusting... His shame is written all over him. He is cowering under the table with that look. He won't even look right at you. He's kind of like looking away, like it's not me. And what adds insult to injury is our family, especially our nine-year-old. He's very good at saying, be ashamed, Tiggy. <laughs> oh, and he gets even lower on the ground. He knows that phrase. See, Hebrews 4, which we just read, tells us that we are all exposed before God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 
says, no creature is hidden from God's sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, being exposed is in fact where the gospel begins in our lives. If we're not exposed, if we don't have the ability to recognize our sinfulness, then the gospel cannot begin in us. As we say at the beginning of our services every week, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known. From you no secrets are hid. We acknowledge right at the beginning that we are exposed before Almighty God. Zacchaeus is exposed in this moment. But thanks be to God, he's not just exposed, he's embraced. And see, this is where the gospel comes in because the story could have just ended there. It could have just been the shaming moment and that's it and it's done and that's all that Zacchaeus will remember. The rabbi came to town and sort of rubbed my face in my sin and walked away. That's what we expect. But instead, Jesus embraces him. See, verse five goes on to say, I must stay at your house today. I must stay at your house today. As we said before, in the ancient Near East, to share a meal together is to declare fellowship, to brotherhood and sisterhood, family, to accept one another. It's friendship, it's love. And especially to come under the house of someone, to come under someone's roof and spend time together to break bread and be together is to declare friendship, community, family. Jesus says to this man, the Architolonus, the, the ruler of the tax collectors, probably what everyone considered to be the worst possible person living in Jericho, Jesus says, I'm going to come to your house today. I'm going to make fellowship and friendship with you. See, what's interesting is verse 7, the crowd is concerned when they say, this man, Jesus, has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And that word guest, it means rest. He's gone to take his rest in the house of a sinner. And, and it means even more than that because the word rest here kind of implies elsewhere in the New Testament this sense of almost destruction. And you say, well, how does destruction and rest meet together? Here's my translation. What, what Jesus is effectively saying to Zacchaeus is, I'm going to come and crash at your house today. I'm going I'm to come and kick my sandals off. I'm going to lay down. I'm going I'm to take a nap. We're going to eat some food together. We're going to hang out. I'm going to probably crash again. It's been a long road, and I've got even a longer road ahead of me. I'm going to come and crash at your house. It's the language of what you do with a close friend, someone who you can really trust, who you can really be with. I'm going to let my hair down, kick my sandals off, and just be with you, Zacchaeus. It's unbelievable that Jesus would suggest such a thing. It's unbelievably generous, unbelievably merciful, and it changes Zacchaeus forever. The crowd is horrified, aren't they? Horrified. But this is the gospel. See, Jesus says at the very end in verse 10, he says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. The lost need to be found. I've come for the lost. I've come to embrace the lost. As John Newton, the former slave trader who 
converted and wrote the song Amazing Grace, he writes these words. He says, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. This is the gospel that we are exposed before a mighty God, and yet he chooses to embrace us. And you know what's amazing is even more of this evidence is coming. This, Zacchaeus has changed because of one sentence. Verse 5. Just an invitation to be a guest in his home. That changes Zacchaeus. And he hasn't even seen what's coming. Jesus will put on this display of his amazing love for us because we're in chapter 19 of Luke's gospel. You carry just a few verses forward and Jesus has a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. No wonder he needed to crash for a day at Zacchaeus' house because he knows what's coming. He will be arrested. He will be tried unfairly. He will be scourged. He will carry his cross. He will be pierced and die and on the third day rise from the dead. All to display and to win a lost people, display his love to embrace broken sinners and bring us home. Zacchaeus and all these other disciples will see a love put on display, an embrace from an almighty God to an unworthy people that is the heart of the gospel. How deep the Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's the embrace that Zacchaeus receives. See, he's exposed in this moment, but embraced. But it's not just that. Zacchaeus finally is enlisted There's even more. He's enlisted now to become a disciple, to live a new kind of life. Verse 5, when Jesus says, I'm going to stay at your house, it doesn't just mean I'm going to come have fellowship with you. It means all of that, but it also is the language of a disciple and his master. See, in John chapter 1, we meet a couple disciples who first interact with Jesus. And the first question they ask him in John chapter 1, verse 38, is they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And you think it sounds like, are you at the Quality Inn or the Super 8? But that's not the question. It's not a navigational question. The question is a discipleship question. They're saying, can I come wherever you are? Because wherever you're staying, I'm going to stay. Wherever you go, I will go. I'm going to follow you. Because see, disciples want nothing more than to become like their master. They become students. They become apprentices. They watch everything they do. They literally live with the master to watch how he lives so they can live just like him. And Zacchaeus is already, from this brief encounter, already beginning to live as a disciple. He's already seeking to model for the world, what he's had Jesus show him. Jesus has shown him amazing generosity. And so without a a moment, he turns that generosity out towards the world. I'm going to be like my rabbi. I'm going to be like my teacher. Verse eight, half 
of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it. I restore it fourfold. Now, what's really amazing there is that he's going above and beyond what the law of Moses required. See, Moses required that if you stole something, you'd pay it back double. Zacchaeus will pay it back fourfold. And, and he's not doing this to you know, be a bragger or to sort of show everybody how righteous he is. No, what he's doing is he's putting on display just how much generosity unearned he has just received. He is modeling back the generosity that God has shown him in Jesus. And I love the fact that it's in the present tense. He doesn't say, you know, if I've defrauded anybody, you know, let's talk about it. You know, get in line. We'll make a list. We'll negotiate. No, it's present tense. He says, if I've defrauded anyone, anything, I restore it now fourfold. The gospel has taken root in this man's life. He was shown great generosity and now he's modeling what his master shows him. He's, he's living as a disciple already. You see, when I first became a Christian, I didn't yet realize that Jesus' death and resurrection was not just about forgiving my sins and giving me a ticket to heaven. Now, it is, it includes that, but there's so much more to it. It took me a time to realize that, in fact, the gift and the inheritance that Jesus had won for me and for you and all who come to him in faith is nothing less than Christ-likeness. That we are growing each day from one degree of glory to the next by the word of God, by the Holy Spirit being changed more and more to be like him. That's what discipleship means, to become more and more like Jesus. In Romans 8, 29, Paul writes, those who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed, conformed to the image of his son. You know, in our colic today, we pray these words. We say, oh Lord, and in your goodness and mercy, give us the liberty of that abundant life that you've made known to us in Jesus. That abundant life, that abundant life is nothing less than Jesus' own life. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is what has been promised to us. And you, you notice this because I pray this every time I preach or teach that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ. And, and you may begin wondering, maybe, maybe he doesn't know any other prayers. Maybe I don't. Because that's the prayer. God's word is always in the business of changing Zacchaeus's into Christ-like disciples. And do you know what's really cool? Church tradition tells us that Zacchaeus followed Peter around for a while after the crucifixion and resurrection. And multiple sources say that he was ordained by Peter. Zacchaeus was ordained by Peter as the first bishop of Caesarea. But here's what's really cool about it. Is in the list of bishops, when you read from the apostolic constitutions in the fourth century... This is 300 plus years later after Zacchaeus is long and dead. 300 years later, when they list the bishops 
Here's how they list the bishops. They say this, they say, of Caesarea of Palestine, the first bishop was Zacchaeus, who was once a tax collector. And here's what I find amazing. 300 plus years after this man had already gone to be with the Lord, how is the church describing this bishop? How are they describing Zacchaeus? They're still describing him as Zacchaeus, the bishop who used to be a tax collector. In other words, this language of his exposure, his sin, his, his past was not some kind of shameful mark on his head. It became a sign of the glory of God. This was the gospel over his life. Because God gets the glory again and again in our lives as he takes such as you and me, Zacchaeus's all, and transforms us, conforms us to the image of his son. You see, we need to hold together this exposure and this embrace. This is the gospel. I am exposed before God and I'm embraced before God. And if I don't hold the two together, I don't have the gospel. And I'll miss out on the joy of generosity. You see, Zacchaeus is the great antithesis to the rich young ruler. You see, just a few verses earlier in Luke chapter 18, Jesus runs into this wonderful young man, this rich young ruler. And, and, and the rich young ruler says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments. And do you know what he says? The rich young ruler says, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you'll have a treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. You see, this rich young ruler is contrasted with Zacchaeus. They're, they're both rulers, right? One is a rich young ruler, the other is the ruler of the tax collectors. They're both very rich, but here's the difference. That rich young ruler believed before God that he was pretty okay, pretty righteous before God. And therefore, he completely missed the gospel. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, just as much a ruler, just as rich, knew that he was the scum of the earth before a holy and mighty God. And therefore, he could embrace this gospel for what it was. Zacchaeus knew that he was exposed before God, and therefore, the embrace of Jesus was for him the gospel. I like as Friedrich Beekner talking about this idea that, that virtue or growing into the gospel is something that you know, we don't do ourselves, that God does this work in us. He, he says this, he says, it is something that God seems especially apt to do in people who are not virtuous at all. He says, think of, it is something that God seems especially apt to do in people who are not virtuous at all, at least those who are the, that way when they start. Think of Francis of Assisi or Mary Magdalene, quite unvirtuous characters when they started. And then he says this, he says, if you're too virtuous, the chances are that you think you're a saint already under your own steam. And therefore, the real thing can never really happen to you. If you 
If you're too virtuous, the chances are you think you're a saint already under your own steam, and therefore the real thing can never happen to you. Zacchaeus the bishop, known for 300 years and even now to this day as the man who was a tax collector, he knows what it is to be exposed before God and yet to be embraced. And that's where generosity comes from. It comes from encountering the gospel, the whole gospel. That you and I, like Zacchaeus, are up that tree, as it were, seeking Jesus, being drawn to him. And as we meet him, he exposes us for all that we are. But he embraces us, despite all that we are. And he enlists us to be his disciples and to live that generosity as a reflection of his generosity for the sake of the world. As C.S. Lewis says, he loved us not because we were lovable. He loved us because he is love. This is where generosity comes from. As we realize the truth of verse 10, that we are the recipients of verse 10, that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.